From Muhlenberg College, this is 2400 True. I'm your host, Shakita Griffin. In each episode of this podcast, I talk to one Muhlenberg graduate about their current work and the industry in which that work is done. For this episode, I spoke with Jamie Hutchinson, class of 1969. She is retired, but formerly a clinical operations consultant. As I do with most of these interviews, I began the conversation by asking how and when Jamie became interested in her occupation. So I started at Muhlenberg as pre-med, and I was actually not a really stellar student. I came from a high school that didn't offer as much of the competitive courses as some of the other kids that I was against. So I wanted to go to medical school, but I didn't get in. And that was a little bit shocking to me. So right from the beginning at Muhlenberg, I had to figure out who to be when I wasn't going to be who I thought I was going to be. And I thought Muhlenberg was a really great place to do that, to figure out what happens when what you think is, isn't. And that you can fail at something, whatever you want to use that word, which I do all the time, and you don't die. And you reconstruct yourself. And I think I've remade myself quite a few times, not because of not being able to do what I wanted to do, because, but because there were other things that I decided I would rather do. And I think fear holds people back from doing that. That I can't leave this job that I've had for five years because suppose I can't find something else. Mm-hmm. So with all of that as preface, I was a science major at Muhlenberg. And from Muhlenberg, when I did not get into medical school, but I was still interested in science, I took a job as a bench scientist for Colgate Palmolive Company in New Jersey. I did that for a while and I liked it. It was, I learned a lot. I got married young in 1970, I was married. And my then husband was in the military, Vietnam was going on. He got into University of Michigan ROTC program before they burned it down, I guess, back in the day. and. So then I got a job again as a bench scientist, only this time at Park Davis, which was off the campus. So I did a few years of bench research. I liked it a lot, but I realized that really to get where I would want to go with bench research, I'd have to go back to school and get my PhD. I wasn't really interested in doing that then. Maybe now I'll still do it. Who knows? So that was my first kind of career, bench science. Then I realized at some point that what I really liked about most of what I was doing was teaching the text or explaining things or sharing my knowledge. So though I always said I would never be a teacher because both my parents were teachers and I was never going to do that, I realized that I was probably a teacher. So I did take some courses during my first work as a bench scientist. I took some courses at Rutgers towards getting a master's in education. Life intervened and that didn't happen right then. But I was now like bifurcated, you know, I was doing bench science, I was interested in education. We came back from Midway Island, which is where my husband was stationed during the Vietnam War, which was an experience. But on Midway, I got a chance to teach because certainly they're always in need of teachers there. And the experience there really showed me that I pretty much was a teacher. I taught third through 12th grade, it was a little island school. So I taught third grade through 12th grade, all the science, all the math. It was a little crazy, but I also learned there that you don't have to be perfect in anything, really. You have to just you know, give it a really good shot. So that was fun. 
uh, came back from Midway and did some more teaching at a school. And then I started having children. While I was living with my young children, I decided I was interested in getting a degree in theology. It was a, it was a, an interest. It wasn't, it was an exploration. Prior to that, when I was living in Georgia at some point, I went to seminary. I got into a seminary that was near me about an hour away. And that was a wonderful experience when I had young children, because when I was with my kids, that was with my kids. And then I would drive that hour or so to seminary. I'd throw off all the mom stuff, take on all the student stuff. And it took me six years to go through a two-year program, but it was spectacular. And I learned so much. I interfaced with people who were very different than I. Um, it was really great. I studied but basically epistemology, which was how do we know what we know? And that's always been an interest to me anyway. People, you know, they, they stake their lives on things. But when you ask them, well, why do they think that? You know, faith becomes the answer, but what is that really? So all of those questions fascinated me. So I got my master's in theology, which was great. I worked for one year in a church. It's not where I belonged. So I took myself out of the church environment. <laughs> then I went back to the education piece and I taught in a high school in Boston for quite a few years. And I loved that. Uh, I, but at this point now I had kids who were going to college. I was divorced and I had to make a little more money than I was making as a high school teacher at Cathedral High School, which I loved the school. I loved the students. I loved everything about it. And I was sorry to leave it. But again, life is not a direct line. You do what you have to do when you have to do it. And I got a job as a study coordinator for a study, a cardiology study at Boston Medical Center. So basically I had to back up because I knew what I wanted to do was eventually go somewhere in that field. So I went from not making much money to making less money so that eventually I could make more money. <laughs> so that it all worked. I worked at Boston Medical Center for a few years and I took a job at a, a small pharma. Then I took a job at a device company. And then eventually I worked at Novartis and became the director of cardiology and metabolism studies. From there, I went to another small pharma to just change it up a little bit. That drug failed, so that company closed. Again, every time any of these things happened, it made me a better person. It made me able to handle different things in ways that perhaps I would not have known how to do. After that failed, people called me and said, would you like to consult? So I did some consulting work. I was very picky about where I was going now because at this point I was well into my 60s, probably in the early 70s, I'm not even sure. And I said, I'm only going to work on something that I really want to work on at this point. So I took a job at, with an ALS company that was working on that horrible disease. And I consulted with them until they got big enough to hire somebody full time. That is when I decided that I was permanently going to retire. So now I get to visit my grandson in Manhattan. I get to visit my son in Vienna. I get to curl as much as I want. I'm about to become the president of the curling club here on Cape Cod. I love it. Yeah. I had a bucket list when I retired. I wanted to sing in a big group. So I'm singing with the Falmouth Chorale. I wanted to learn more about opera. So I'm taking an online class. You know, there's just so much out there. So that's my story. Amazing. Thank you for that. <laughs> You know, what I love about your story 
is it twists and turns and does not go in a straight line in any way. No way. I think many hearing your story would think you are fearless in terms of taking those risks, going on adventures, taking new classes, pursuing your interests. And so what is it that allows you to be fearless and approach your life fearlessly? So uh, I just realized something I left out and then I'll answer your question. So in the middle of all this, I took a, a, a course in becoming a life coach. Because I think all of the things that I've done and all of the different people I've worked with has really shown me similarities between everybody, but vast differences. And, you know, how to work with that. So I forgot to tell you about that piece. Okay, what, what's made me fearless? I was not a fearless teenager. I did not come to Muhlenberg fearless. I didn't even see Muhlenberg before I arrived on campus. And I only live 50 miles away. Wow. I went to Muhlenberg. I got accepted as a junior. I went to Muhlenberg basically because my father went there. My uncle Ange went there. My uncle John went there. And I was going there and it was a good science school. So I went there for a safe place to put myself. And I think not, not getting into medical school and still succeeding and still finding happiness and still was the, my first step in becoming fearless, failing and learning from it and becoming stronger. And then, I mean, I've failed at things, but you become so much stronger and you take risks, you take more risks. You, you learn so much. So I credit Muhlenberg with giving me that safe place to begin. That's awesome. And to feel like it was, I could fail and not, I say this all the time, you fail, but you don't die. Right. You had a place to land. It's pick you yourself up, land. start again. You'll, you know, you'll live to venture out another <laughs> <Yes>. day. <laughs> and so along that path, every experience, you're gaining skills, you're learning lessons. So how were you able to translate those skills from one area to the next? You know, from teaching to medicine to working in pharma? I think surprisingly... The skill sets are pretty similar. The garbage that surrounds the skill set changes. The science certainly was different at Novartis than it was from teaching at a high school in Boston. But the skill set of understanding how to break things down, the skill set about how learning how to manage people, the skill sets are really pretty much interchangeable. So the, the more you work on those skill sets by trying different things, even if the things you try are volunteer things, even if you say, I can't, I can't not be a lawyer, but maybe what I need to do is go work in a homeless shelter for a while, or maybe I need to expand my experience, but you will develop skills that you take anywhere with you. I feel like they were so transferable that it wasn't that hard. I mean, of course I had to spend more time learning the science, but even, even with the kinds of things I did, you learn how to learn. You learn how to be more efficient in your learning. So I did not find that to be difficult. Once you take that step over the abyss, then you realize you can fly. Awesome. Just being able to put yourself out there, take those risks. And I'm sure you surprised yourself on many occasions, realizing yeah. you learned, you knew more than you thought you did even. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I, I say my biggest skill set still is what goes into being a good teacher but it is shocking to me how that skill set works 
with, you know, a few editions of this and that pretty much everywhere I go. Another piece I want to touch on is the relationships that I'm sure you've built throughout your career. Thinking about how did you build those relationships? How did you build a network, be able to tap into that network? What did that look like for you? So I wish I could tell you that I was really good at all that, but not really a strength for me. I find myself leaving people behind, which I've never liked about myself, but it's the fact. So I have a few special people that I'm still in touch with. But when you do what I've done in your in my life, you have so many people that you're interfacing with all the time that if you try to keep up with everybody, that's all you're doing. I'm a little jealous of my own children. They've done a tremendous job of keeping in touch with mostly their high school and college people. In my case, I come from a very big Italian family. I just have one brother, but I have like 70 cousins. So that really has been my support system. Those are the people I've stayed closest with. And then maybe one or two people from each of the things that I've done. And I don't think that I've really used a network to my advantage as much as maybe somebody else knows how to do. And so maybe that's the detritus of doing things the way I've done, because a little bit I've been a lone wolf. But it's worked for you. <laughs> it's worked for me. And, I've and you know, I've always, and I do have, my brother is very supportive. He's a physician. I've always been able to toss things around with him. I have one really good friend that I worked with at Novartis who is still a really good friend of mine. We network all the time. So I wish I had a better answer for that one. No, I think that's a great answer. And it yeah. is truthful answer to showcase those different experiences. You know, you connect with who you connect with. You keep those relationships authentic. And yeah. that is always a key for them to be successful. Yeah. I do think though it's a downside for me um, when I move from one thing to another and you know, there's so much to learn and there's so many people to meet that I haven't done as good a job as I wish. I have one person that I still connect with very tightly from when my children were young. I saw so I have one person here, one right. person <laughs> there like that. <laughs> and you know, maybe that's the advice to, to learn from your story is thinking about those connections and making sure that you don't leave people behind. Yeah, because it, yeah, because it is something that I wish I had done a little differently. When you think back to your time at Muhlenberg and even beyond, because you've dedicated yourself to continual education and always enriching yourself, you know, what are those classes you took, books you've read, things, you know, things you've done that have really inspired you? I think everything that I've done inspires me, whether it's a book or I can think of when I was teaching in Boston at the high school, we had a huge Vietnamese influx. And there were a couple of the girls who were in a bad living situation. So we took them in and they lived with us for a while. So that's another reason I'm telling you this is there are opportunities all around you if you just stick your hand out. And I learned so much from that relationship. I mean, they, I, I had a little bedroom I could give them. I didn't have much, but they, they flourished because they were safe. And it just never occurred to me how important safety is. So that was one big lesson that I learned. 
I've been a reader forever. I'm a big science fiction reader. I think it's a, just a great way to see how people think. But right now, for instance, I'm reading the, all the biographies of all the presidents. So this is a, 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 a task I set for myself during COVID. And so um, since COVID's over, I've slowed down a little because there's a zillion other things to do now. But um, so now I'm up to President Grant. And the thing that I am learning and I'm thinking, boy, I wish I had taken more history courses when I was at Muhlenberg or somewhere. But this is like a big history course for me is how close to falling apart democracy has always been. And now all the stuff that we go through here, it's not any different. I mean, it gives me hope, even though sometimes I want to just punch people. It gives me hope that this is how it works. This is the way democracy works. And at the end of every book, when that president dies, I get tears in my eyes, even the bad one. <laughs> and I'm learning so much from that. So, so there's that. Um, and I've always learned from every place I've lived. I've been in a, a book group. And this may be good or maybe bad that I'm about to say this, but it's always been all women. And they've been so transparent. And I've just learned from people's reaction to all these things. So pretty much reading and reaching my hand out to people in need, which is one of the things I feel that right now, since I moved here, I'm not doing as well as I would like. So I'm looking for that here. I don't know what that's going to be yet, but I'm sure it will happen. Exactly. I know you'll find it. I'll find something. Yeah. It's the one thing on my list when I moved here that I haven't yet really fulfilled. So you know, I'm reaching, I'm doing a lot of volunteer work at the curling club. I'm singing in this group. I'm reading these biographies. I'm learning about opera. But that piece about giving more of myself to others, haven't really found it yet. But I love that it's on your list to pursue, that it's a thought that you're putting that effort into. And I think that that taking that course in becoming a coach. Yeah, that was that was formative. And I was already, you know, well into my life and it was still for I guess what I'm saying is. You, if you're open, you can always be formative. You can redo yourself a zillion times and you're not, and you're adding on, you're not subtracting. And being a lifelong learner, I mean, if you learn nothing else at Muhlenberg, you should learn to be a lifelong learner. That's what keeps you vibrant. Mm -hmm. I love that. So, I mean, that's already great advice. And as we're closing <laughs> the conversation, I'm going to ask you for some more. <laughs> oh, you know, what advice would you give to anyone listening, you know, whether they're early in their career path, a little bit more established, and let's say feeling stuck, because I think especially as we've listened to your journey, that idea of transformation, of taking those risks, right, of trying new adventures has been so prevalent. So what yeah. advice would you give? This is an interesting question for me, because I feel like I'm going through this with my son right now anyway, so I can talk to you about our conversation. He's very bright. He uh, went to Duke and then he went to Georgetown Law. And he is an overachiever even on top of that. And so he works in corporate law in Europe. And he works too hard. He's never satisfied with his product. He's a, can tend to be a perfectionist. And he's not happy with that. So our conversations are, do you have to be a star? why do you have to be a star? If being a star doesn't make you happy, then you don't really want to be a star. So can you, this is just, this is one piece. 
can you do your job effectively without overdoing it? So that's what I would say to people who are just not happy with the way their work is going, with the way they're doing their work. So that's one kind of person. That's a different kind of person than somebody who feels stuck. Uh, he feels stuck in himself. I've never, I've always been the person that does the best. I've always done. So why do you have to keep doing that? So just self-awareness. So now what I love is he's riding his bicycle way more. He's joined a bicycle group. They're off doing things. And he says, I don't need to be, I'm trying not to need to be the best. Because I think that's a false message we give, that it's important to be the best. If you love what you do and you happen to be the best, good for you. But if you are wrecking your life because you're working to be the best, bad on you. So that's my advice for that. I love that. And again, that self-awareness that it takes to get there. I think that's that life coaching coming through again. It is that life coaching. It is that life coaching. I mean, maybe I didn't realize I was going to say this, but I think that might be one of the most important things for people. Even if you have no interest in being a life coach, you're life coaching every day. In your relationships, you know, in relationships, you're not telling people how to be or what to be, but you're involved in their decision making. You want to be a good person to be involved in have thought about it, have thought about it in yourself. So anyway, he's one example of what advice I would give. For other people where it's not that same issue, I would say, this is what you're doing. Again, self-awareness, reach out to do something else in your volunteer time. Even if it's like an hour a week, an hour a month, start where you can. On my email, I have a quote from Arthur Ashe, who was a tennis player of your, and he just basically is saying, start where you are, do what you can. But before you can do that, you have to know what it is that you would like to do. What makes you feel like this life is worth it? You don't want to go through this whole thing. And at the end, have your tombstone say he worked hard. <laughs> so reach out. That's what I, advice I would give to other people. It's amazing how much time you can free up. I know that people who have young children, that's a whole different story you're already reaching out to your own children. So you have to give people permission not to reach out somewhere else. It just depends on the person that you're talking to. This episode of 2400 Chew was produced by the Office of Alumni Affairs at Muhlenberg College. It was recorded and engineered in the studios of WMUH, Allentown, Pennsylvania. Our opening and closing music from Cowboy Bebop is performed by the Muhlenberg College Jazz Big Band. <laughs>